31 and 32. We begin reading at verse 22 of Deuteronomy 31. We'll read through verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 32. We begin our reading in chapter 31 because that demonstrates to us that the words of our text are part of a song that was sung by the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 31 verse 22. Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge and said, Be strong and of a good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee. And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of writing the words of this law in a book until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, ye have been rebellious against the Lord. And how much more after my death? Gather unto me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to record against them. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. Give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. They have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do ye thus requite the Lord, O foolish people and unwise? Is not he thy father that hath bought thee? Hath he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee, thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, 
he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirreth up her nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, taketh them, beareth them on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead him, and there was no strange God with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth, that he might eat the increase of the fields, and he made him to suck honey out of the rock, and oil out of the flinty rock, butter of kine, and milk of sheep, with fat of lambs, and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats, with the fat of kidneys of wheat, and thou didst drink the pure blood of the grape. As far we read the word of God, may God bless unto us the reading of his holy and inspired word. The verse that we consider now is verse 4 of chapter 32. This word of God, he is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know as well as I that the world in which we live is constantly changing. And it's not improving, it's not getting better, but rather becoming worse. Wickedness is increasing. Sin is approved and even defended and protected. And Satan continues to trouble the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I might hope for a better future for ourselves and for our children, but that won't necessarily be so. In fact, we cannot expect improvement. The Bible, that is to say God himself, tells us that as we near the end of time, this is exactly what we can expect in this world. And yet, beloved, as reformed believers, we have a rock-solid foundation on which to stand. As our text says, God is our rock. And God is our rock, as we are taught that in the words of our text, as the sovereign God of heaven and earth, the God who is sovereign in his works in eternity, in his counsel, and the God who is sovereign in time, the God who is in control, so that there is nothing that happens by chance. The God who is sovereignly at work, 
and the God who in his doing, in his working, is carrying out and doing, according to our text, perfect work. Perfect work. might say and mention in passing too, beloved, that this truth, the sovereignty of God, is a truth that is most dearly loved by those whom we know and have come to know in the Philippines and who are new to the Reformed faith. Of all of the truth, this is the truth that they fall back on again and again. And of course, so do we, and so ought we to do. The sovereignty of God. Notice, however, beloved, before we look at the words of our text, how the words of our text are introduced to us. Verse 1 says this, give ear, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Give ear and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. This is that song that Moses wrote for the children of Israel to sing. And the opening words of the song call the people of God to give ear, to give special notice to the truth that is set forth in our text. This is the introduction to that. Before speaking of this truth, before introducing the truth itself, the people of God are called to pay attention to this. And then notice in verse 2, this truth is referred to as doctrine. My doctrine but then it is described as doctrine that drops down like the rain from the heavens and like the dew that falls upon the herbs of the field and the showers of rain upon the grass. This is doctrine, you could say, according to verse 2, that is life-giving doctrine. This is doctrine that is refreshing to the soul of the people of God, just as the gentle showers of rain refresh the earth. And then thirdly, notice in verse 3 that this is God-centered doctrine. I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. That's exactly why this is refreshing doctrine to the soul, because it is God-centered doctrine. It is the doctrine about him who is, according to verse 3, our God. Our God. And this is, no doubt, therefore, the life-giving and refreshing doctrine that the souls of the people of God need. 
So let's consider the God who does perfect work. We'll notice, first of all, his perfect work. Secondly, his just judgments. And finally, our confession of this. What is clear, first of all, beloved, is that God is at work. God is a working God. God is a God who is active, a God who is busy doing his work. And God, as the God who is doing his work, is the God who does everything. There is nothing that happens that is not the work of God. He has done his work in eternity. He worked at the beginning of time to bring the world and everything into existence, and now he continues doing his work. He does all good things, but he is also the God that does what we refer to as Evil things. Shall there be evil in the city, and the Lord hath not done it? Amos 3, verse 6. And that's true of all of the works that have happened in the past. That's true of all the works that are happening in the present. And that will be true of all that happens in the future. True of everything that happens in the world everything that happens in the church, and true of everything that happens in your personal life. It is the work of God. And what the text tells us about all of that work of God is this. That work of God is perfect. Perfect. And we certainly could say many different things about the works of God. And we often do. And other passages of Scripture do that too. The work of God is good. The work of God is wise. The work of God is all comprehensive. Covers everything. The work of God is purposeful. The work of God is mysterious. God says about his work, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Our text doesn't mention those attributes of the works of God, but instead speaks about and calls our attention to this one attribute, this one characteristic of God's work, namely, God's work is perfect work. Perfect. That's not necessarily something that you and I are quick to say about the works of God. Is it perfect when God disrupts 
your plans in life? Is it perfect when God sends you sickness and pain? Is it perfect when God takes away your income and livelihood? Is it perfect when a family member dies? Is it perfect when your life is filled with failure and with trouble? And the Word of God before us says, yes, it is, it is. All of those things are the work of God, and God does perfect work, period. So what does that mean? That God's works are perfect. Well, first of all, we can say this, beloved, that To say that God's works are perfect is to say that God's works are in conformity or in harmony with God himself, with his being. The text speaks of that concerning God. The, The being of God is described in the second part of the verse. God is a God of truth. God is a God without iniquity. God is a God who is just and who is right. And so the works of God are in harmony with that. God is perfect, therefore God's works are perfect. God is without iniquity, therefore the works of God are without iniquity. God is a God who is just and fair, and therefore the works of God are just and fair. God is a God who is always right, and therefore the works of God are always right. And so the works of God are flawless works. There are no mistakes. There are no defects. There are no faults. There are no blemishes. There are no errors in the works of God. When God does something, God never has to think and never has to say, as we do, I messed up. I wish I hadn't done it that way. God never has to say that. His works are perfect. And that's hard for us to comprehend, I know. We live in a world of imperfection. Every work of every man is imperfect. And all of the works that you and I do are imperfect works. Even our best works are never perfect. Never. And yet, regardless of what you and I see, and regardless of how things appear to us in this world and how things appear to us in the church and in our own lives, the world is filled with the perfect work of God. 
Everything is the perfect work of God. And it's perfect in every possible way. It's perfect for everyone that is involved. It is perfect for everyone who is, in, is affected by the work of God. Perfect, of course, first of all, and chiefly for God himself. All his work is perfect because every work perfectly serves the purpose of the glory of God. But it's also perfect for the people of God. Every work of God is perfect for you and for me because it is what you and I need for our souls and what we need for our salvation and what we need for our preparation for glory in heaven with God. But also perfect work of God for the wicked. Perfect work of God as he controls the wicked, as he directs the ungodly, as he directs the world of those who reject him and do not believe in him because he directs them so that what they do serves his church and directs them so that what they do and what they say prepares them for the judgment of God that will come upon them eternally. Perfect for everyone who is affected by the work of God. And so even if things seem to us to be imperfect, if things to us seem to be crooked, they are not. All is perfect. Nothing could be better. Nothing could be improved because this is the work of God. Everything is better than the best that you or I could think of and the best that you or I could plan. We may ask, well, why is that? What's the explanation? What's the reason behind all the works of God being perfect work? <clears throat> the explanation, beloved, is this. The works of God are perfect because all the work of God serves God's most important work the work of salvation in Jesus Christ. You understand, God is not simply doing all kinds of different, unrelated, random works in this world, but God is really doing just one work. One work. That's clearly pointed out in our text, too. He is the rock, his work is perfect, not his works, but his work. The text has in view that God is doing one work in all of time and in all of history. 
And what is that one work? That one work is the work of God of glorifying himself through saving the elect in Jesus Christ. And if you consider just that one work of God, then you can understand that it is a perfect work of God. A work that has been perfectly done by him. A work that continues to be perfectly done by God. A perfect plan of God to save his church, providing for his church a perfect Savior, accomplishing through the work of his Son a perfect atonement for the sins of the people of God. And all of that work accomplished by Jesus Christ perfectly, in perfect love for God and out of love for those who had been given to him by God. And behind all of that work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect love of God for his church to save her and to bring her unto himself forever in glory. Because of all that, a perfect, salvation for us. One day, perfect joy and perfect peace for us. And every other work of God is perfect because every other work of God serves the salvation of the church. Everything. Even affliction, and even sin serves the strengthening of the faith of the people of God, serves the sanctification of the saints, serves to separate the people of God from sin, serves to prepare you and me for heaven. that is true, and it is, then how can we ever think that God makes mistakes, that there are flaws and errors in the work of God? Why would God, in light of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ for us, do something to ruin that perfect work of his son. God cannot do anything but perfect work for his glory and for our good. Doing that, as verse 3 reminds us, as our God, our God, God, who is our rock. But then notice, beloved, the text directs our attention to a certain category of God's works, namely his judgments. 
He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. The text does that because while we can perhaps understand and accept that some of the work of God is perfect, the work of his mercy, the work of his grace, the work of his providence, and so on, we may have a difficult time sometimes to say that the work of God's judgments is also perfect. We are inclined to think that God is sometimes unjust, unfair in the judgments that he sends. And yes, we'll admit he is fair when he judges the wicked. They get what they deserve from God. But we will not so easily and readily say that when the judgments of God come upon us. We do experience his judgments. His judgments experienced in our personal trials in life and the judgments of God as he brings them sometimes upon the church as well. And judgments of God as they come upon the nation and we are affected by those things. And we can sometimes think or say to ourselves, How can this be a perfect work of God? Well, God's judgments are also perfect. God certainly sends judgments upon mankind. None can deny that God has sent many judgments upon mankind and even upon us in recent years. Sickness, disease, death as judgments of God. Disasters and catastrophes as judgments of God. Troubles within the family as judgments of God, and troubles within the churches as judgments of God. And we understand, of course, there are two kinds of judgments of God. There are the judgments of God that are punishments, and those are the judgments of God that come upon the ungodly, judgments by which God is punishing the ungodly for their sin because God is angry with them and his wrath is upon them. But there are secondly the judgments of God that are his chastisements. The judgments of God that come upon believers. The judgments of God that come upon the church of Christ in this world the judgments in which and by which God chastens those whom he loves. 
the judgments that are, as it were, a rod of God that smites the people of God in order to correct them. And all these judgments, according to our text, are perfect judgments of God. They are just judgments of God. God is doing with those judgments that he brings upon mankind in general, the ungodly as punishment, the church and people of God as chastisement, those judgments in bringing them, God is doing what is right and God is doing what is fair. There are no mistakes in the judgments of God. And all those judgments of God are just, and all those judgments of God are perfect judgments for one fundamental reason, and that reason is sin. God is just in his judgments because all men are sinners. God is just and right and perfect in the judgments that he brings because all men have sinned against God and come short of the glory of God. God is just and perfect in the judgments that he sends because all men deserve the judgments of God. Everyone gets what they deserve at the hand of God when he brings judgments upon them. That's true of the ungodly. God is not unjust in making them suffer God is not unjust in making their lives miserable when he does. God is not unjust in bringing upon the ungodly sickness and poverty and crime and pain and disaster and death. The ungodly have it coming. They hate God, they deny and they ignore God, they take the name of God in vain, they hate the church of God, they reject the laws of God, and they deserve what God brings upon them. What's a wonder is that God does not bring upon them even greater judgment and even more severe judgment. God is also just, beloved, in the judgments that he brings upon the people of God, upon you and me. And he is just in bringing us those judgments because We too are sinners. 
who have sinned in Adam and who have sinned against God all our lives. We can never say, I don't deserve the heavy hand of God upon me. We can never say, I don't deserve the wrath of God. If God would even double or quadruple the suffering and the pain and the judgments that we experience at his hand, God would be just in doing that. Remember, even Job admitted that. After he had suffered like no one else had suffered, and his wife came to him and told him, curse God and die, Job said, what? Shall we not receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not also receive evil? He understood the sinner deserves the judgments of God. No, may, no sinner may say that God is unjust in bringing judgments on him. And no church may say that God is unjust in, do that, in doing that. God justly brings his judgments upon us. And yet, the wonder of all wonders is that when God does that, God is not punishing you and me. Not through anything. And that's true not because we do not deserve to be punished. We deserve that punishment of God as much as the ungodly deserve it. But that's true of us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of him, the judgment of God upon us is never, never punishment but always loving chastisement upon his people. Because God put the punishment for our sin upon his son. And his son endured that punishment to the end. And his son declared from the cross itself concerning the punishment for the sin of all the elect of God, it is finished. He removed the wrath of God from us. And now the favor of God rests upon his people, even, even when God sends his judgments upon us. That judgment is a chastisement, a chastisement for our good. So you understand, beloved, the only escape from the judgment of God is that we belong to Christ. 
the only escape from sickness, the only escape from suffering, the only escape from pain, the only escape from death, is not a cure, not a solution to those things, not an end to those things, but Christ, our Savior, who removes the curse, who removes and has removed the wrath of God, so that the suffering is a chastisement for good. And finally, beloved, note that our text, as we mentioned before, is part of a song. Mentioned in chapter 31, verse 22, and also in verse 30, of that chapter, Moses spake in the ears of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song. This was a song for Israel to learn. This was a song for the nation of Israel to sing and for us to do likewise, to sing of God as their rock, to sing of God as a God who does perfect work. Perfect also in the judgments that he brings upon his people. And so no matter who you are, beloved, old or young, adult or child, married or single, man or woman, and no matter what your circumstances are in life, each of you personally may sing this song concerning God. God is my rock. And God, my rock, is doing perfect work. Perfect work in my life. Perfect work in his church. And perfect work in all the world for the glory of his name and the salvation of his church. Here's what it means, beloved, to confess that. It means this. You stand today before your whole life, your whole life, the past, and the present, and even the future. Your whole life passes before your eyes today. You see everything that has transpired in your life. Your birth, your childhood, your youth, your adult life, all that has happened in your family, all that you have recently experienced as trouble in your life, and even your current circumstances and difficulties today. 
your whole life stands before you. And someone asks, was there and is there in any period, in any event in your life, in any experience that you've had in your life, was there a flaw? Can you point out an error in something that God brought upon you in your life? Can you point out an error in something that God did in his church? Can you point out an error in something that God has done in the world? Look at it all. At what thing are you going to point and say, that was wrong? That was not perfect. God made an error. What will your answer be? Confessing, beloved, the truth of this text, by the grace of God you will say, all of the works and ways of God were and are perfect. And no matter how bad things have sometimes been, nothing needed to or needs to be changed. Nothing needed or needs to be something that God did differently for me. Because God is my God. And God does perfect work always, always, for his glory and for my salvation. Confessing in this song the perfect work of God. And so may you thus confess this truth, beloved, and believe and embrace it for your comfort as the people of God. Truth that falls as blessed rain and dew and refreshing for the soul of the people of God. Life-giving doctrine for us. Remember it and continue to find comfort in this doctrine concerning God and this doctrine concerning his work in your life and in mine. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy truth, for Thy sovereignty, for Thy hand in all things, for Thy perfect counsel and plan, and Thy perfect carrying out of that. Bless us with this refreshing rain for our souls, and give us the comfort of the gospel that as we belong to Christ and have been given to him, then thy work is perfect for our salvation and for the glory of thy great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.